Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want you to think about yourself but not right now your past self so pick any point in your life you want a formative moment and just imagine yourself then what do you think of when you think about that person well I'm going to show you myself from the past just for comedy value now this is 19 year old Tom up in the corner there the one resting his pint on his friend's shoulder Uh, that's me 20 years ago Um, no real reason to show that other than just giggles you're privileged I don't show that photo to many people but when I think about me at that season of life it was a fun time it was a time that God was at work in my life and yet every thought I have about that moment is just massive cringe it was like horrible to think about it the photo is cringe the way I acted was cringe the way I thought my opinions on things I just look back at it was I really that person did I really do that I don't know if any of you feel the same way whenever you think about past you it's just like fist in mouth like this is really awkward to think about that's quite a natural thing actually I think a lot of us think that way because we've grown we've changed we've transformed and matured from who we were into something different actually 19 year old me was a pretty good guy but if I'm still acting like 19 year old me now there's a problem something hasn't worked well in life and everyone changes as they get older now not everyone goes on the same journey of growth some people just get old but don't really get mature some people really nail it and boss the whole transformation through life thing and so my theme this evening is how do we do this well how do we do growth and change and transformation in the right way And the way I want to do this is look at a character study from the Bible. So there are lots of different ways you can study the Bible, learn from the Bible. It's all breathed out by God for our benefit. And I'm going to look at the story of one character. And this is a guy called Judah in the Old Testament. So this term, we've been looking at a story over the back few chapters of the book of Genesis that we've been colloquially saying this is the story of Joseph. So you might know a bit of Joseph's story. Well, Judah was Joseph's half-brother, and he keeps popping up in the story at different moments. And it's really interesting to track through his life. So that's what I want to do with you this evening and see how he changed, how he grew, and how he was transformed, and see what we can learn from that. So let's paint the picture of what's going on. This is recapping some of the ground of the, the Joseph weeks, but from a different point of view. There's 12 of them, half-brothers, so same dad for all 12, four different mums involved. And out of the 12, the favourite by miles and miles and miles was Joseph. And the reason Joseph was the favourite is that his mum was Rachel, and Rachel was the one who Jacob actually liked out of all the four mums. He was tricked into marrying Judah's mum, which is never a good start for a marriage, is it, when, when you're tricked into marrying the person? But that's what happened. Um, Rachel was the one he really wanted to marry, but that's weird, isn't it? (laughs) 
But for years and years and years, Rachel wasn't able to have kids. So these four kids are born to Leah, that's Judah's mum, so Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Then both of them had a maid who they suggested Jacob slept with, and more kids were born to these maids, and then Leah had two more kids. But eventually, after years of longing and waiting, Joseph is born. So you're growing up in this household, and he's the absolute golden boy. He's the one that Jacob spoke well of, trekked with his money, spent time with... Let's have a show of hands. Is there anyone in here whose parents had a favourite child? Yeah, there's a few. Anyone who that favourite child was you? <laughs> yeah, there, there are some. <laughs> in fact, I think there were more hands for the second question than the first. That's, I don't really understand that. But If you're Judah or if you're one of the others and you're growing up in this household, you could be excused for feeling a bit hurt, feeling a bit confused, feeling a bit resentful towards Joseph. It was all epitomised in the cloak, you know know, the robe of many colours that he got, but really ornate, elaborate gift from his dad. None of the other brothers got one. It'd be like if, if your dad bought your sibling a Porsche when they turned 17 and you didn't get anything. You'd just be a bit resentful, you'd be a bit annoyed about it. And Joseph, he didn't feel at all embarrassed about the way his dad was treating him. In fact, he kind of milked it a bit. He knew how to play the role. And he'd say things like, right, lads, let's have a chat, because I had a dream last night. And guess what happened in my dream? Yeah, that's right. You were all bowing down before me. Isn't that good? Should we talk about that dream? And you can imagine everyone saying, no, let's not talk about that dream. Shut up and go home, Joseph. You're annoying us now. And that was the dynamic of the family. Now, this all came to a head one day when the brothers had been miles and miles away. They were looking after all the animals, uh, like all the herds, and they'd gone a long way from home. And so Jacob sent Joseph, who Joseph didn't have to do a real job. He just got to stay at home most of the time. But he was sent out to check up on them and see if they were doing okay and come back to their dad with a report. They see him in the distance. They're really irritated with him by now. So they hatch this plan to kill him, throw him in a pit, tear his cloak up, put some animal blood on it, and take it home to their dad and say, hey, we found this. It looks like Joseph's dead. Oh, what a shame. That was their plan. And this is the moment then that Judah, the guy we're looking at tonight, first differentiated himself from the rest of the brothers because he had a different idea. Now, you might think, great, Judah to the rescue. He's going to be some magnanimous hero. No, not at all. His problem with their plan wasn't that their brother would end up dead. It's just that they wouldn't get anything out of it. And his question was, that's a stupid plan. What's the profit in that? And then he saw some slave traders in the distance and was like, ah, there's profit in this. Let's sell him as a slave instead. So they sold him into slavery. What we see of Judah is a man utterly uh, unconcerned with his brother, but really concerned for himself, wanting what he could get out of it. And that's all that Joseph mattered. We get another little story early on in Judah's life uh, with with Tamar. This is his daughter-in-law. So uh, we talked about this in detail a few weeks ago. I'm not going to retread that ground much today, but it was the same story. So she was widowed, Judah's son, and then his next son had died. He was meant to provide a home for her, provide an heir who could support her in her old age. But he didn't. He ended up exploiting her and denying her justice. Exactly the same dynamic as with Joseph. You're only useful to me if I can get something out of you. Otherwise, let's shove you away at arm's length. 
He's not doing very well. He's, he's a bit of a wrong one at this part in his story is Judah. Well, while all this is going on, Joseph's story's taken all the twists and all the turns we've been hearing about. He went to Egypt as a slave in Potiphar's house, did pretty well there, but then ended up accused of a crime he didn't commit, went to prison, did pretty well in prison, got a reputation that God had given him this ability to understand the dreams that other people had. So on the back of this, one day he was brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh was uh, the ruler of all Egypt, and he'd had some dreams that had been bothering him. So Joseph gets brought before him and he explains the dream. He says, look, in a few years' time, there's going to be a famine. So what we should do is we should store up a bit of food now ready for when that comes. And Pharaoh's like, this is a great idea. How about I give you a job? How about I put you in my government and you're in charge of making all this happen and store up all the food ready. So then the famine came and there was loads of food there so people in Egypt could go and buy some and have plenty to eat. And people from other countries nearby would travel to Egypt to buy food because they were hungry. So we're 20 years on now from when Judah and his brothers sold Joseph. The stories are now going to intertwine once again. Because all of the brothers had to go to Egypt and buy some grain. And I say all of the brothers, we're talking 10 of them actually. So obviously Joseph is out of the picture now. And the little brother, Benjamin, that's Joseph's full brother. So this is also Rachel's boy. He was a lot younger than the rest, but he was a grown man at this point. And yet Jacob wouldn't let him go because he was the new favourite. And this idea of going to Egypt, it was a bit too dangerous to send his favourite son on. All the rest of them, that's fine, they can go. If anything happens, I'll deal with it. But not Benjamin. Definitely don't want him to go. So the other ten went. Now what happened is Joseph recognised them. They didn't recognise him because he was in all the get-up as an Egyptian official. But he'd clock, ah, these are my brothers. So he had them grilled, he found out their story, he found out there was another brother, Benjamin, and what he said to them was this, right, you can have some grain, you can take the food home that you need for now, but when you come back, because you'll need more at some point in the famine, when you come back, you've got to bring your little brother with you as well. And that will prove that you've been telling me the truth, because you might just be spies, you might just be up to no good. And actually, <coughs> until that happens, I'm going to keep one of you behind. That's going to be like my hostage, my prisoner in the meantime. So one of the brothers, Simeon, stays behind. And then they all set up home, and it's not long into their journey home. They open their sacks, and they find, as well as all the grain, their money's back in there. So the money they were meant to have paid with somehow has ended up back in their sacks. And it's not long before they're like, oh my goodness, this could be a big problem. Because we're meant to come back with Benjamin, and we're meant to say, hey, you remember that chat we had? Well, here's the little brother, everything's fine. But now it looks like... They've nicked the grain and nicked their money. It looks like they've been up to no good. Now, that wasn't the case, but the perception of it would be going back could be dangerous. We could get in trouble. We could get accused of doing this deliberately. Going back has suddenly become a dangerous endeavour. But this prompted a big moment of reflection among the brothers. So as we go through this, I'm going to pick out different verses throughout these chapters of Genesis to show you. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to some of them. Um, but this is chapter 42 and verse 21, where it talks about this reflection moment that they had. 
Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. For some reason, somehow, this moment has made them think back to 20 years earlier and what they did with Joseph. And they're like, oh my goodness, we are guilty. We have done wrong here. It's finally dawned on them that they've gone wrong. This is the second moment like that for Judah. After that chapter where it talked about how he treated Tamar, he ended up reflecting on it in this way. This is 38.26. She is more righteous than I. Twice he's seen his life and twice he's seen that he's gone wrong. He's, he's walked down the wrong path. He's done the wrong things. And so he needs to turn and start acting in a different way. Now, we have a word for this. We, we talk about it at church a lot. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you're not. We call it repentance. and It sounds such a big technical word, but it's simply a change of direction. It's realising I was on one path. That wasn't such a good path. I need to change and go a different way. And Martin Luther, he's one of the, the key figures in Christian history. He said this, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Basically, what he's getting at is we should be constantly seeing where we're going wrong and then adjusting to going the way God would want us to go. I actually think it's a real mercy of God when he shows us something in our life where we're not doing it well, where we're not doing it right. It's a powerful thing. I've happened I've had it happen to me numbers of times that I've just felt God nudge me on something. It's like, oh yeah, that wasn't right. And it allows me to change. Let me just say this. When you get that happen to you, when it's like God's nudging you on something, don't harden your heart to it. That's the last thing you want to do because it's like you become a bit callous to it and stop being able to hear what God's leading you into. It's a kindness of God to get your life on track. When you see him doing that, it's like a a fork in the road. You can choose to carry on the way you were going or to be transformed. Well, Judah's seen it. He's understood that his life was on the wrong wrong track. And it changes him in a big way. So here's what happens. They get home and they've eaten all the grain. They need to go and get some more. But Jacob has been just difficult about it. He's like, no, you can't take Benjamin. You definitely can't. It's too dangerous. He's my son. I don't want him to die. I don't want him to go into prison. You've got to understand how valuable he is to me. And you think, hang on a second. Simeon's your son as well. He's rotting in a jail in Egypt. You don't seem bothered about that, but you are bothered about Benjamin. In the New Testament, it speaks of this as the sin of partiality. And that's when you say, I love you, and I'm going to ignore you. You matter to me, but I'll just keep you at arm's length and disregard you. It's a really poisonous thing in a family, a workplace, a church, wherever it may be, when people start acting like this. But he actually ends up saying this, right? This is chapter 42, verse 38. He says... My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. The only one left. Imagine you're Judah, and you hear your dad saying that. Imagine your dad pointed to your sibling, your brother or sister, and said, this is the only one left. 
Hang on, aren't I your child? Haven't you noticed I'm here? Well, apparently not. It'd be like a dagger in the heart. Then Reuben steps in and he has an idea. Now, Reuben's idea, basically, you, you know that saying, there's no such thing as a bad idea? Reuben disproves that with what he says next. Because he says, all right, I'll tell you what. Let's take Benjamin to Egypt. And if anything happens to him, you can kill two of my children. And then it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awful, right? What was he thinking? How is that going to help Jacob? Like, yeah, if your son dies, just kill two of your grandkids and that'll make it all right. No, no, Reuben, stop it. But Judah has a much more helpful contribution to make. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 43. And this is really the beginning of the making of Judah. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you, also our little ones, and I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you see what he's doing there? He's taking personal responsibility. I notice some similarities here with that moment when they sold Joseph. In both cases there was a bit of a family issue they needed to decide what to do about. In both times Reuben had had an idea but in both times it was Judah who was the one who had the decisive say, who came up with the suggestion that was acted upon. He's emerged as the leader among the brothers. Only the first time, 20 years earlier, his idea had been to the detriment of his brother for his own personal gain Whereas this time, he's putting his own personal stuff, his reputation, his money, his inheritance, all of it, he put it all on the line for the good of his brother. He's completely transformed. It reminded me of a, a tweet that I saw by Trillian Newbell, who said, I've been thinking about men in power, their responsibility, their ability to protect and look to the interests of others, and the abuse of power we so often see and experience. And then I think of Jesus, who had all the power, yet read Philippians 2, thankful for Jesus. And I see Judah in this, because in those first instances, selling Joseph into slavery and how he treated Tamar, well, that was an abuse of power. But now, what's he doing? He's taking responsibility to protect his little brother. He's a totally changed man. A key ingredient in maturity is when you're willing to take responsibility and to do that, you sometimes need to stop accepting your own excuses. You know, we can be so quick, can't we, to rationalise away why we're doing things the way we are. We can do it in our spiritual life. We can say, hey, I really struggle with prayer. I don't have time to read the Bible. There's all these things going on. We can make these excuses and sometimes we accept our own excuses. Maturity says, no, no, I know all that's true, but I'm going to take responsibility and find a way to make this happen. It can be with our finances, it can be with our job, it can be church life, whatever it may be. You step up and say, I'm going to make this work. I'll take responsibility. And then you start to carry responsibility for other people as well. And that's what Judah does with Benjamin. Now, where that leads to isn't always easy. Because they go down to Egypt, they, they do take Benjamin 
with them. And then after they've been to see the Egyptians, after they've got their grain, they open their sacks and their money's in it again. Only this time, Benjamin's got way more money than the rest of them. He's got the special silver cup as well in his sack too. And then the Egyptian guards come and chase them down and say, hang on, hang on, someone's nicked the cup. We need to look in all your sacks and see who it is. And they find it in Benjamin's sack. Now, this was a little trap that Joseph had laid for his brothers because he's created an opportunity for them to do exactly the same thing that they did 20 years ago. He wants to keep Benjamin as his servant as punishment for taking this cup. That leaves an opportunity for all the other brothers basically to go free, to dob Benjamin in, to say, yeah, he's a bad and Benjamin, yeah, he's always been a bit of a thief. You keep him, punish him for that. We'll just go, we'll take this grain, we'll eat and we'll be fine. He won't. It's exactly the same situation. Their brother would end up a slave, they'd end up fine, and their dad would end up heartbroken. They could do it all over again. Only this time they don't, because the brothers, and in particular Judah, they're not the same as they were 20 years earlier. So Judah steps up, and he speaks to Joseph about it, and he does quite a long speech, and it covers a lot of the background, what I've narrated for you over this last bit of time. But I just want to pick up this speech as it's getting towards its crescendo. So this is chapter 44, and reading from verse 30. This is what it says. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy, that's Benjamin, is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants, let's talk about all the brothers, will bring down the grey hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shale. For your servant, talking about himself this time, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant, as in himself, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers." For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Do you see the change? Do you see the absolute transformation in Judah? Before, he was willing to make his brother a slave for his own gain. Now, he's willing to become a slave himself so his brother could go free. What a transformation. He'd done nothing wrong. Judah hadn't committed a crime here. And yet there he is, stepping in and offering to take the punishment in place of someone else. Who does that remind you of? It's a picture of Jesus here. It is centuries before Jesus came, and yet he's caught something of the same heart that Jesus had, that he'd be willing to step in and be a substitute for someone else in the punishment that needed taken. It's like he caught what Jesus taught. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
If Judah had tried to wriggle out of this situation, if he tried to save his own life, they'd probably all have been thrown into prison. But there he was, willing to lose his life, lay himself down, give up his freedom for his brother. And he found it. And they ended up all getting freed and the family being reconciled and forgiveness and flourishing happening. So if you want to be mature, if you want to boss the transformation in your life, here's how you do it. Grasp deeply in your soul what Jesus has done for you. And then live it out and take up your cross and lay down yourself for other people. And do it even for those people who are a bit annoying. And do it even for those people who seem to be getting all the attention. And even those people who are where you want to be and where you think you ought to be. Judah had a rough deal from his dad in the family. Benjamin had a really sweet deal. And yet Judah's still laying himself down for him. And David Mathis said, this is the legacy of Judah. Not exploiting others, but sacrificing for them. Not pushing others down, but lifting them up. Not using power to hurt others, but to help them. There was a moment in Judah's story that there's no way that would have been his legacy. And yet God did a work in him and totally transformed him. I want to finish by telling you the twist in the story. So Judah is mentioned one more time in Genesis and it's chapter 49. And the context of this is that in those days when a man was about to die, he would say a blessing over each of his sons. And this is the blessing that Jacob said over Judah. And it's verses 8 to 10. Uh, Well, 8 to 12. I'll read verses 8 to 10 of Genesis 49. It says this. Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I wonder what you notice in that. For me, verse 8 just jumps off the page. And those words, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Because isn't that how this story started? Didn't it start with Joseph getting all the brothers around and saying, you're all going to bow down before me. I've had this dream. God's told me it's true. Well, that did come true in one sense. They went to Egypt and they bowed down before Joseph and it all got fulfilled. And yet here, those same words are spoken not of Joseph, but of Judah. That he's the one who eternally, ultimately, prophetically, the honour belongs. Because this family had the promise of God. Abraham passed down to Isaac, passed down to Jacob. And I wonder if when Joseph said, you'll all bow down before me, he said, oh yeah, the promise will come to me. I'm the one that the whole destiny of the family will be carried in. No, no, that wasn't Joseph's honour. It was Judah's honour. And it makes me wonder, seeing this, if maybe when we talk about this as being Joseph's story, in one sense it is. But I wonder if in another sense, this has been Judah's story 
all along. It's been the story of God taking Judah and transforming him. You know, sometimes you watch a film and there's a character in the background and they're in a lot of the scenes, but a big deal isn't made of them. Until you see the end, it's like, oh, it's your story. I wonder if that's what's going on here with Judah. Then in verse 10, it talks about the scepter. It talks about uh, the rule. It talks about the obedience of the peoples. It's about kingship. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the kings in the line of Judah. David was from the tribe of Judah. All the kings that came from David were from the tribe of Judah. And we see it ultimately in Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Jesus, we see a a true and better version of everything good that's in the Judah story. You see, just like Judah, Jesus was often overlooked and ignored. He wasn't highly favoured. Just like Judah, Jesus took responsibility for something that he could have said, that's someone else's problem. Looking at this fallen world, he could have stayed up in heaven with his father, but he chose to take it on his shoulders and come down. And just like Judah was willing to lay himself down, sacrifice himself, take the punishment for Benjamin, so Jesus came, sacrificed himself and took the punishment for your sins and mine as he went to the cross. He bore it all, which means that we, just like Benjamin in this story, get to go home to our father. And it also means that because of all that he did, we can grow and we can change. And so that cringeworthy version of you and of me that we started with from 20 years ago or whenever you pictured, that version of you and me, it's not the end of the story. Also, by the way, the cringeworthy version of you and me in the room today, that's not the end of the story either. Because God's at work in us. He's given us the Holy Spirit and he's making us something new. He's changing, transforming and maturing us. So that just like we saw in Judah, we too will start to resemble the image of his son. Isn't that good?